Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, and I'm a National Relationship Director with our private equity practice based in New York City. I'm actually very excited to have two guests, two good friends here with me today. Uh, First, we'll start with Ken Hoyer, joining us from Kidd & Company. Ken is a principal focused on strategy-led investments in the lower middle market. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate being here. Yep. Uh, Secondly, I'd like to welcome to the program Charlie Fox, very good client, head of business development at GHK Capital Partners. As head of business development, Charlie assists his firm in pursuing investments primarily within the industrial sector. It's uh, Charlie, it's great to have you here today. Thanks, Todd. Glad yeah, to be here. Appreciate it. Why don't we jump into it, Ken? Uh, would you like to kick things off by telling us a little bit about uh, Kid & Co. and your role there? Happy to, Todd. Thanks again for uh, inviting us. So just by way of background, Kid & Company is a family office, private equity investment group based, uh, based in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, we're looking for opportunities, typically less than $10 million of EBITDA, uh, family-owned and operated companies that have uh, a history of success but have reached the end of their tether in terms of being able to continue growing at the same uh, level that they may have experienced in the past. So if we can come in and partner with those management teams, offer them a liquidity event through a transaction, but look to keep them involved operationally in partnership with us as general business builders, uh, that's usually a good recipe for success. Good stuff. Charlie, um, as a head of business development at GHK Capital, uh, I was hoping you could tell our listeners uh, a little bit about your company and your role there. Sure. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having us here. Uh, GHK Capital was founded uh, last year by uh, Gil Clemen uh, after 17 years at Goldman Sachs, leading industrial investing in PIA within the merchant banking uh, division. Uh, our strategy is to bring sort of large cap value creation methodologies down to sort of the lower half of the middle market, which we're defining as sort of 10 to 30 of EBITDA with sort of flex up to 40. Um, our focus is primarily in what you might call, you know, traditional industrial businesses, manufacturing, building products, services, distribution, packaging. Um, you know, my, my activities within GHK are focused primarily on business development, um, interfacing with uh, both interme- intermediaries and also business owners sort of throughout the the country. So awesome. Well, two great guests. We're happy to have you. And uh, I'm sure you got a lot of uh, interesting uh, experiences to share with our listeners. So let's jump into the first topic. Um, Ken, I'll start with you at Kid & Co. Um, as, as you and I know, your work focuses on uh, conducting technical, financial and market due diligence, as well as overseeing strategy execution for um, existing uh, investments. Maybe you could highlight a couple trends around uh, due diligence for manufacturing and distribution. Sure, sure. Well, you know, being generalists in the lower middle market probably gives us a little bit of a disadvantage in terms of uh, depth of industry insight. And so when we're looking at a manufacturing or distribution uh, business, you know, one of the first things we have to get comfortable with is what are the macro trends that may be impacting that particular uh, subsector of, of manufacturing. You know, for example... Uh, we've got a couple of investments in aerospace manufacturing businesses that we invested in 2011 and uh, 2012, which at the time, you know, we were really comfortable with 
um, what the outlook was for, for build rates, particularly with the aerospace, uh, the balance of commercial and, and defense. And so as I think about um, you know, today's investment climate and manufacturing in particular, uh, certainly you know, we focus on domestic-based uh, businesses. So you've got to look at you know, what is the competitive playing field uh, globally, because most manufacturing sectors do have you know, competition on a global stage. And so, you know, figuring out the relative um, importance or, or competitiveness of U.S.-based manufacturers, and then, you know, as we'll get into a little bit more detail, you know, what is the, you know, the sourcing of raw materials and, and components, and where do those come from if they are offshore uh, in today's increasingly complex uh, uh, tariff-led environment that does lead to uh, some other considerations that you have to weigh in. But uh, yeah, that's just kind of a, at a high level, some of the, the things that we look at. That's awesome. Appreciate that insight. Charlie, uh, turn to you from your perspective, I guess, what's driving or even hindering uh, private equity deal making in the uh, M&D sector? Sure. So I think in, uh, in terms of what's driving deal flow right now, obviously, the economy is doing great domestically. And in the part of the world that we uh, tend to spend our time, um, there's a lot of people making a lot of money. So um, there's also capital in the space, which is uh, driving sort of the uh, just the flow. Um, in terms of hindering, there's obviously concern about interest rates going forward, whether or not, um, you know, our cycle that we're on right now will continue to, to grow. Our, our view is that we will continue to see growth. Um, housing has been flat for two years. We believe that, um, that that'll come back. Uh, investment in business domestically, again, where we tend to operate has been strong. Um, so, so long as we can uh, continue in this trend, we think there'll be continue to be great flow. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, there's been a lot of talk within the industry about shifting trade alliances, NAFTA renegotiation, and significant tax overhauls, we all know. Uh, some fund managers uh, with a stake in M&D are reporting changes in how they evaluate deals. So I guess, again, here I'll ask both of you. Charlie, we'll go to you first, and then Ken. Uh, how is PE evaluating supply chains, taking steps to de-risk, or evaluating due diligence differently, given all these uh, concerns? Sure. So from a supp uh, supply chain perspective, um, we've looked at opportunities that certainly have exposure, uh, particularly to metals coming out of China. Um, well, it's a, you know, it's a diverse market. We believe it's a relatively mature market, and we were able to identify ways to sort of navigate through direct exposure to those, um, you know, to those sources of metals. Um, in terms of end users and, and exporting, um, it's something we spend a fair amount of time diligencing and trying to find ways to work around it. However, in a, in a peer environment, we believe that, um, you know, that we can work around those concerns. Ken, care to share any uh, thoughts? Sure. You know, as I, as I think about it, uh, just, you know, one, um, you know, to kind of build on what Charlie said, one anecdotal example is we own a medical device contract manufacturing business. And when we made that investment back in 2015, uh, the consideration at that point in time was, you know, for companies that manufacture outside the U.S., such as China and the Far East, you know, how do they have a competitive advantage versus what we're doing here in the United States because of the labor arbitrage, because of other attributes that uh, may give them an advantage? And, um, you know, that was really, you know, a major point of due diligence as we thought about um, the competitive advantage of manufacturing domestically. If you fast forward to today, uh, you know, the consideration is really more about, as Charlie mentioned, to what extent are you sourcing raw materials or components from overseas and what's going to be the, the cost impact of having to pay more uh, through the effect of the, of the tariffs that are going on. I would say 
obviously it's a consideration, particularly if you had sourced historically cheap uh, labor or um, components uh, from overseas, what is going to be the financial impact on, on margins and to what extent can you pass that through to customers or, or otherwise, or just have to deal with a business that's going to be lower margin going forward. And then the question is, you know, are these going to be permanent shifts in, in tariffs? Are they temporary? I don't think anybody can really handicap that yet. Um, in terms of our businesses, uh, to a large extent, when we manufacture domestically, we're not really sourcing a lot of the uh, components or raw materials from overseas. So we haven't seen a tremendous impact on the tariffs. Uh, but the other thing I'm aware of is, you know, I mentioned the aerospace investments we have earlier. We do have price protection on any fluctuations in raw materials. So to the extent uh, in certain instances where prices have gone up uh, due to tariffs or otherwise, um, it's a direct pass through based on the contracts that we have with our customers. So it's a it's a consideration certainly to look into due, due diligence. You know, what are the contractual relationship for the type of parts that you're supplying? And uh, ultimately, uh, to what extent you're exposed or on the hook for, um, you know, some of the, uh, the, the price increases that, that may be coming. Um, just to kind of keep blabbing here, another example, we do own an RV dealership and have been put on notice from many of the OEMs that we buy RVs from that there are going to be price increases attributable to some of the tariffs that they're experiencing, some of their components. So. Uh, those are effective kind of right now. So I don't think we have a full appreciation for how much of our margins will be impacted and to what extent we can pass those cost increases on to consumers that purchase RVs from our dealerships. But um, I think everybody's kind of struggling with the same sort of timing and it's early days to try to figure out what the real impact on, on business is going to be. Well, pretty, pretty interesting uh, perspectives from both of you. And uh, I know who to go to when I'm ready to get my first RV, Ken. Absolutely. So, it's going to be a good deal, Todd. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I guess on, on top of those, uh, many organizations that uh, rely on imported goods are, are seeing their production costs increase. Uh, again, to, to both of you and Ken, why don't you start? Is this a consideration that you're seeing play out in PE, really, in terms of which companies are becoming attractive targets or which firms are, are distressed? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, again, as, as we discussed briefly, it's, you know, it's a consideration. Um, I don't necessarily see a slowing deal environment because of some of the tariff implications or otherwise. It's really just another factor in due diligence. Um, at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to necessarily rationalize paying a lower multiple because if you do, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage for the guys that are going to be out there, you know, used to paying higher multiples. And again, it's just, uh, in the current environment, it's just one more factor of uh, due diligence that needs to be considered. And um, if there is a longer term impact, obviously you're paying a multiple based upon the future uh, earnings of the business. So you have to take that into consideration. Sure. Charlie, thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And to piggyback on Ken's comments, I think that the, um, you know, the idea that, that the, the supply chain cost in a certain segment is going to affect all players in that space. And, uh, you know, if you're operating in the United States in a domestic market or if you have international exposure, um, so long as that supply chain cost is, is, is comparable across your competitive landscape, um, you know, we can certainly get comfortable with that and the idea that we can pass that cost then on to the end user. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for, for the thoughts. They are really uh, important things to keep in mind. Now I'd like to switch gears momentarily for our coffee break with BDO Steve McCullough in Chicago. Steve leads our transaction advisory services tax practice for BDO Central Region and focuses largely on the industrial products industry. Let's hear his insights. 
from a tax perspective, with respect to the manufacturing and distribution industry, one of the hot topics emerging from tax reform pertains to bonus depreciation. Now, buyers of both new and used property can take advantage of bonus depreciation, which enables a buyer to expense 100% of the cost of qualifying property, for example, certain machinery and equipment, through December 31st, 2022. The expensing of 100% of the cost of qualifying property gradually phases down during 2023 through 2026. There is no bonus depreciation available for property placed in service after December 31st, 2026. Now, in the world of M&A, there's a lot more focus on bonus depreciation than ever before. Because, as I mentioned, it can now apply to used property. As such, in deals that are structured as asset deals, for example, an actual asset deal, or a deal that is treated as an asset deal for income tax purposes, for example, a stock deal with a Section 338H10 election, any purchase price that is allocated to qualifying property may be immediately expensed by a buyer as opposed to being depreciated over a much longer life. Now, on certain transactions, we are seeing buyers push for as much purchase price being allocated to qualifying property as possible in order to take advantage of bonus depreciation. However, sometimes what's good for the buyer may not be good for the seller. So like many things in life, this becomes a negotiation point. Now, please note that tax reform disallowed net operating loss carryback. As such, there's not an ability for taxpayers to report significant deductions attributable to bonus depreciation in order to create a net operating loss that taxpayers could carry back to prior years and claim a cash tax refund. Rather, now net operating losses can only be carried forward and they can only be used to offset 80% of future taxable income. In addition to bonus depreciation, it is worth mentioning that some changes were made to Section 179, which allows certain businesses to elect to expense the cost of qualifying property. Following tax reform, the annual expensing limitation was increased to $1 million. Tax reform also increased the phase-out amount to $2.5 million. Both bonus depreciation and Section 179 are taxpayer-friendly provisions to taxpayers in the manufacturing and distribution industry. And bonus depreciation should definitely be given some consideration when modeling a purchase price allocation and forecasting taxable income in the context of a transaction. So uh, with that, Todd, back to you. Thanks for sharing, Steve. Really appreciate it. And now we'll jump back to the conversation with Charlie and Kent. 
Since Steve just shared some of uh, his insights on tax reform, guys, I'd like to hear your perspectives on the topic. Um, The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017 marked the largest change to U.S. tax policy in decades, for sure. Uh, Charlie, we'll kick this one to you first, and then Ken. Do you think implications for manufacturers overall has been positive or negative, and maybe why? Uh, Sure. I think that absolutely the tax changes have been positive for businesses. Um, Speaking solely about manufacturing businesses in the U.S., um, if you look at the growth in the economy since 2007 going for, uh, 17, excuse me, going forward, um, and the continued sustained business investment, um, it's quite apparent to us. Our view is that that this has been nothing but good for business. Um, the trickle down effects going forward will have to be sort of um, uh, discovered as they emerge. Um, but but you know, quite frankly, we think it's great for U.S. business so far. Ken, yeah, I agree with Charlie. Uh, you know, to the extent you're not paying money to the government in taxes, it gives you that much more. Uh, capital to put back into the business for, you know, capital expenditures and growth, which, you know, we're certainly big proponents of in the lower middle market where we play. You know, I would say the, you know, the double-edged sword or the the flip side of some of the tax reform that's gone on is the limitation on interest deductions uh, that come. And since we do play in a leveraged environment, uh, we certainly aren't getting the same benefit uh, of interest deduction that comes with, uh, you know, the, the debt component that we use to finance our businesses. So, uh, you know, on balance, I still think, you know, paying less taxes is a good thing. So, you know, we're, we're all for it and look forward to uh, what, what it holds in store for the future for our businesses. Fair enough. Both uh, interesting points and uh, perspectives. Uh, to conclude, let's move on to kind of our last topic, as I'd like to talk about valuations in the M&D space. Uh, clearly, valuations remain high for manufacturing companies due to a number of factors. Uh, with a record amount of dry powder, strategic buyers' appetite for deals really remains strong given uh, an unending pressure to grow and the willingness in the lending community uh, to fund deals. Uh, so I will ask both of you, um, and, and Ken, I'll throw it to you first, is this making it more challenging for P investors uh, to find bargains? And do you think it's uh, creating a drag on investment activity? Sure. Well, you know, certainly the in, environment, as Charlie mentioned earlier, is is flush with cash and a lot of new uh, newer funds being raised all the time, making it more competitive uh, to find attractive assets at reasonable valuations. So I would say that despite the current um, sort of relatively high valuation environment, you know, we're spending you know more of our time looking for manufacturing businesses in particular that may have a little bit more issues with them. Um, in certain instances, we've bought uh, companies that have high customer concentration. Um, I know that in many ways that's a, a dirty word in, in, in this environment, but if we can get comfortable that, uh, say for example, the medical device manufacturing business that we own, um, highly regulated environment um, for the suppliers that they provide products to would require um, the you know recertification with the FDA in a heavily regulated environment. The customers tend not to want to take that risk and shop uh, switching manufacturers just to save a few bucks on on the products. So, if we can identify issues like customer concentration or uh, the need to invest pretty heavily in capex or relocate to larger facilities to unlock value, those are things that. Uh, we find that we can still find reasonable valuations in the lower end of the middle market and then look to, uh, you know, have the, the value inured to our benefit and our, and our partners that we're, we're getting into business with. So. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Charlie, what are you thinking? Yeah, I think that, that, that 
that Ken and I are on the same sort of page here in terms of, you know, sort of what our jobs are as investment managers. It's to find good value in uh, a market that, frankly, is getting quite efficient in terms of capital flows, um, the, the velocity of transactions that are taking place. Um, you know, at the lower half of the middle market where we uh, sort of choose to operate, we believe that there is an efficiency. There are great opportunities to find businesses that are, um, you know, that are sort of off spec, that are not sort of squarely in the fairway for a, you know, a traditional private equity investor. And I think that's where the greatest gains are made. And that's what we're paid to do by our investors is to find those opportunities. You know, to Ken's point, uh, customer concentration, sort of um, industries that are not typically attractive to traditional private equity investors are where we've seen a lot of great opportunity and good valuations. Um, and, you know, again, that's our job to get out into the woods and find the, find the good opportunities and create value. Yeah, so. Awesome, guys. Well, had a lot of fun chatting with you. We're unfortunately to the end of another uh, podcast, but uh, Ken Hoyer with Kid & Co. and uh, Charlie Fox with GH Capital, you both are uh, very good uh, friends and great clients of the firm. So we really appreciate you joining us today and our, our relationship with uh, both of you as individuals and your firms. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, Todd. Awesome. Good to be here. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives. Perspectives.